All right. Just going to make sure I'm not. Sir, we're getting a little bit started, a little bit late. Um, apologies for that technical difficulty. Um, can you hear me? No? Can everyone hear me? Okay. <laughs> Good? All right. Can we just go ahead and pray? Um, dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we can come before you to, together this morning as a church to hear, listen to your word, and just really think about how we can proceed in this assignment which you have given to us. And um, we ask, Lord, that you humble us this morning, um, that you instruct us, that you deliver us from every pride, and, and Lord, give us clarity on how we can proceed in your work. We pray all this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Sweet. So, is it? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Um, so, I was told to come talk about personal evangelism here and now. And when, when I was told, I was just wondering, I was like, oh my goodness, of all the unqualified people, um, they would think about me. So, <laughs> so, it's indeed a privilege to be before you here this morning just to talk about this. Um, this topic of evangelism and what it means for us as a church. So I just want to, this is kind of like my outline. Um, what is evangelism? Why bother about it? Why should we care? Um, just some biblical principles to think about as we move forward. Some practical ways to approach personal evangelism, addressing the barriers of personal evangelism. And we're going to just spend some time praying, if, if that's okay. Um, so right away, let's, let's just go ahead and define what evangelism really is. Um, I feel like we need to, first of all, know what we're talking about before we can move forward. And I'm not going to pretend that I know Greek. I do not know Greek. So I looked up this Greek word. Apparently it's from the Greek word, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. Um, but that Greek word, which is the root of evangelism, means gospel or good news. And in this context, personal evangelism means personally sharing with your friends or your neighbors, the good news of Christ. Um, so I'm just going to just, we're just going to talk about, well, what does that look like? Why should we do that? Um, personally engaging our friends and neighbors in this gospel issue. So why bother? And I came up with this reason. No one can be neutral towards God. You're either for him or against him. Not us here as a church, but also everyone else. Um, in the world, um, our friends at work, at school, they're either for him or opposed to him. I'm going to look at John 3, 17 and 18. To save us time, I just kind of like put all the verses um, here so we can just read together. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So we see two fates, two possibilities, not three. We see belief in Christ, or we see the people who, are stand, who stand condemned. It says, either you believe, and if you don't, you stand condemned. There's no one who's neutral. And it's a tendency for me personally sometimes to think about maybe my friends, you know, they, they're not Christians, but they're really good people, and they'll be okay. Um, but this 
passage tells us otherwise, that if they're not in Christ, they will not be okay. They stand condemned. And that's who we were before we came to know Jesus. We stood condemned. Um, so as much as we want to be loving and thinking about our friends as people who are not necessarily Christians but good, that's not the case. Without Christ, they stand condemned. And that's why it is a very important topic. It's a very important conversation to be had with them. Because outside of Christ, again, they stand condemned. That's why we care. But secondly, in addition to not being neutral, we have been commanded by our Lord to go about this. I like this passage because obviously it's one that everyone knows about you know, evangelism, but it, it highlights a couple of things that I want to draw our attention to. Uh, I'm going to read it. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Something that really draws my attention is verse 17, actually. It says, when they saw him, this is just after you know, Christ had been crucified, he resurrected, and he appeared to them. And some believed, and so some worshipped. But some others doubted him. But both to those who believed and worshipped, and to those who doubted, he gave them this command. Um, he didn't call the ones who worshipped aside. He said, you guys are strong believers. Go tell people about Jesus. Those who doubted, those who worshipped, all together, he sent them. And there's a tendency for us to think, I'm not as solid. You know, I'm, I feel like I need to get more grounded as a believer before I can go tell people. I need to know things. Um, but to those who worshipped and to those who doubted, he sent them all together. And he gave them this command to go and make disciples. It was not, what we see here was not a suggestion. What we see here was not based on any conditions. The only condition he told them was like, you know what, I'm with you. Go do this. I'm in charge of everything. I'm in charge of all of the world. I'm in charge of all of creation. Because I am in charge, go in confidence. So again, we see a clear command, not a suggestion, not an option. A clear command to everyone who calls him or herself a believer. To those who are solid, to those who are doubting, to those who are shaky, to those who are not even really, really sure, he sent all of them together to go. And because of this command he gave to every believer, what we find is that this command is ingrained into our purpose here on earth. And permit me to say that if we're not obeying or walking along... In, you know, in accordance with this command, we're not only in disobedience, but we're probably risking purposelessness on earth. I want to draw attention to 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, and also to verse 20. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and that's Jesus. Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves 
but for who for their sake died and was raised. He died so that while we live, we wouldn't have to live for ourselves. So by virtue of his death, our life on earth now has a new purpose, right? And it's now for the sake of the person who died. So what is this purpose that is for the sake of the person who died? That we may be, in verse 20, ambassadors. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And this is Paul saying, we employ you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God so you can really live out this command of being an ambassador. And this, brethren, is the purpose of the Christian life. This is why after we came to Christ, God didn't call us right back to himself right away. He left us on earth so that we can live this out. He left us on earth so that this work of redemption can continue. He has done everything that needs to be done. He died on the cross. And that is our seal. Right? That is, the, that is, that is, what, that is what we look at. And we're convinced that God is actively redeeming the world. But how does he actually make this happen? He works through us in making this happen. And this is the purpose of Christian living. Living for his glory. Living to be an ambassador. Living to exhibit his majesty in all of creation. And again, I'm going to repeat. It sounds a little bit too direct. But if we're not working with this in mind, we are risking purposelessness on earth. And it might be a wasted life. That's why we bother about this issue of evangelism. Now, I want to bring our attention to some biblical principles just to guide our thinking. And the first one is that unbelief is much deeper than it seems. There's a tendency for us to see, oh, well, they don't believe in Jesus. Well, I can just talk to them and maybe they will. Um, but I want, to I want to draw our attention to the gravity of unbelief, how deep it is. And is this parable that actually... To me personally, it, it helps me see this very clearly, and I, I'm hoping it would help you guys see it as well. Before I just get to verse 22, I'm just going to just give a, just a little like, summary of the, of the parable before we get to that passage. So there's this rich man who is very rich, and Lazarus, who is very, very, very poor. And the Bible tells us that every day Lazarus would be at his gates, you know, eating the crumbs and the dogs licking his wounds and his sores. So these are two different people, the rich man and Lazarus at his gate. And eventually, they both die. So the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish and this, in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. This is a rich man saying, Abraham, please send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Perhaps if they see someone who rose from the dead, they might be convinced and they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I don't know if you saw what I saw in this passage about unbelief. Abraham, the, the rich man is here saying, you know, maybe if you just send someone from the dead, you know, give them all the evidence they need on earth, maybe, perhaps, they would repent. And Abraham tells him, no, not really. They have the prophets, they have Moses, they have all they need. They don't repent in the face of all of that evidence. They probably won't repent if they see a dead man rise from the grave. And what does that tell us? It tells us that it's not a matter of evidence. I don't know about your circles, but in my circles, I'm a scientist, and in my circles, it's all about the evidence. Well, what's the, what's the evidence? And the tendency for me to feel like I have to produce all this evidence, and even only I can produce enough evidence, boom, they will come to know Jesus. And here Abraham says, not really. Even if someone comes from the dead, they probably will not believe. What does that tell us about unbelief? That is deeper than evidence. It's, it's not about your ability to come up with a very, very convincing claim. If people are not believing, it's because of something deeper. And this passage draws us to what that thing is. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. I'm just walking us through passages so we can see um, what the Bible says about this issue. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So we see why just coming up with evidence is not enough, will not cut it. Here's why the God of this world, the enemy has blinded their eyes. It's a spiritual issue. It is more spiritual than we think it is a lot of times. It is much deeper than that. So what does this mean for us? We dare not proceed trusting in our own strength because it's so deep. If a man is steeped in unbelief, it is so deep that we can't afford to move towards that in our own strength. It is, it's in fact impossible. Right? So we dare not trust in our own strength because unbelief is so deep we can't go about this just saying you know what? i'm just going to just say things so that's the one that's that's another principle the third principle i want to bring to our attention is when a person comes to believe in jesus it is a miracle because it's so deep this spiritual blindness is not something physical when that veil is in fact taken off of the eyes of people we rejoice Right? That's, why the, that's why the angels rejoice, because it's a big deal that that veil will be taken off, and people will believe. So what? It's a miracle. Now, the fourth principle is the fact that God doesn't need us to do this. Right? He has chosen, but He has chosen to use us. Sorry about that typo. He has chosen to use us. And this, in fact, is a gift of God's grace. And I want to draw our attention to Saul's conversion just to demonstrate this fact. Again, Saul persecuted a lot of Christians. 
and eventually on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, what happened in Acts 9? A very bright light from heaven struck him and he went blind. And God literally preached to Saul. What does this tell us? He doesn't need us. He could do what he wants to do with or without us. So we need not feel like this thing is dependent on us. He will save people if we choose to disobey. He can do that, and he did that in Acts 9. He saved Saul. And we see what Saul did for the kingdom. He did not need any man. Now, some men were used eventually, but that initial conviction was God literally meeting Saul on his way to Damascus. So it's, unbelief is deeper than it seems. We dare not proceed trusting our own strength because it's deep. And when a person believes in Jesus, we rejoice because it's a miracle. And God doesn't need us, but he has chosen to use us. And it's ridiculous, I think, that he would choose to use me and you, such weak and broken people, to undertake such a profoundly spiritual task. It is a gift of grace. And we don't take it for granted. We pursue it. Now, practical ways to approach personal evangelism. It's easy to think about, well, okay, now I know it's important. Why bother? Well, it's important. We need to, like, do this. But what are some ways to think about this? How can we do it? And I want to draw attention to just one task we have. Because there's so many things to think about and it's easy to get overwhelmed. Well, like, there's just a lot of pieces. But only one thing is required of us in this issue of personal evangelism and it's that we share. And what does that mean? We open our mouths and talk. Mm-hmm. That is the only thing required of us. Now, what happens after then might not necessarily be our duties in terms of like how the word we share convicts them into righteousness or to truth. Our one job is to share. And I think about that passage in scripture where he talks about the farmer. The farmer goes out in the morning, plants his seeds, and he goes to bed. Right? He's not worried about... We the scientists, we think about, well, what happens when that seed is in the soil and like the different things that need to come together for that seed to germinate and like bear fruit. But the farmer is not. He's, he's, he's probably not educated. He's like, I'm just going to plan that thing, and go to bed. And that's the attitude we're called to have in this issue of evangelism. We just talk, and we go to bed. Literally, we talk, and we trust God to use our speech. Right? God takes a seed, and the next day, some sort of fruit comes out. The farmer has no idea how that happens. And we have no idea how that is going to happen. Well, he's got to, the farmer has to wake up, though, and plant that seed, and that's what we're called to do. That is the one job we have to share. Now, there are just some points I just try to note, and these are things that have helped me even thinking about this thing, this idea of occupying all streets. I know there's like an Occupy Wall Street, but that's like not as <laughs> fancy as this. Occupy all streets. Well, what does that mean? Each of us here, we're all on different streets. Some are students. Some just have regular jobs. Some are, some are stay-at-home moms. 
some professors. We're all in different streets that God has like put us right now. And it's important that we think about, well, what, is that, what does evangelism mean for me on my street right now? I'm in medical school right now. What does that look like for me in medical school, interacting with my friends, my classmates, my professors? What does that look like for me? And we have to take, that's such an important step that we take a step back and, and, and figure out, well, what does that mean for me? Well, I'm not a pastor. Yes, and that is good. Because God's glory has to reach, it has to seep into every facet of life, right? God's glory has to literally seep into every facet of life. And that's why we can't all be pastors, right? Some people in the engineering field have to hear the gospel. Some people... I've heard one pastor actually say we are all pastors. We all are. We're all ministers. Exactly. But when I say pastor, I don't mean like in the, in the sense of having a church, that yes. we pastor. I'm sorry about that. I need to clarify. Yeah, we're all pastors. We're all missionaries, right? Yes. In a sense. And that is our primary calling. And what does being a missionary as an engineer look like? What does being a missionary as a medical doctor look like? And we all have to work that out. Secondly, we need to establish relationships with people. And this is such an important piece that I feel like it's often forgotten. <clears throat> And it's just like very, very cliche. I, I hate saying this thing, but I, I might have to say it because I feel like it, it, it um, passes a very important message. The fact that people don't know how much you know. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, it's not biblical, but it's, it's kind of true. Um, based on lived experience. They don't want to really know how much you... They don't care how much you know until they know that you actually care. And that's why this relationship aspect is very important. And that's why before even proclaiming this gospel to them, we have to demonstrate that we actually love them. So we don't just, we don't just have this assignment and we just go about saying this thing. But the gospel is lived out, right? It's lived out and it's proclaimed. See, if you're proclaiming it and not living it out, we have to think about that, right? So like, how can we establish relationships with people, Right? And engage them in this conversation. Right? So relationships. And the good news is that we all have people we're connected with in one way or the other. Right? There's nobody who's hopefully not connected to anybody. Right? We all have relationships. And, and that's what's cool about personal evangelism. And that's why I'm really glad that in this series of global missions, we're starting with this. Because if you go to a different country... You might have to learn the language, right? You have to like establish new and fresh relationships. But right now, you all have people who you work with. You have neighbors who you talk with. You have coworkers, right? And these are all existing relationships. So now we think about how can we take advantage of this relationships that are already existing. These people who already know that we care about them. How can we go even deeper in those relationships? So we establish relationships. And thirdly... This idea of active engagement. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, I won't really bring it up until like it comes up. It's going to come up naturally. The conversation is going to come up. And oftentimes it won't. You know why? It's an awkward conversation to have. So no one is going to bring it up and say, well, you tell me what you think. I want to know. What. Sometimes now, sometimes people bring it up and they ask you just randomly, like, Kalechi, like, tell me about the gospel. That has happened like once. 
or twice in my life. And I'm 24, which is not that old, but. <laughs> um, but yes, that could happen, and God is good, and God is gracious, and God might be working behind the scenes and cause them to ask you that question. But sometimes, a lot of times, most times, they won't, right? So what do we do? We bring it up, right? We, 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 we become active about it. We, we push it. That sounds bad because I know Americans don't like to push. Like, we just like, you know, just do your thing. I'm doing my thing and just we'll be cool. But no, no, no. Because there's so much at stake, we move. We initiate. So active engage, engagement. I like to think about it one conversation at a time. I grew up in Nigeria, and what is big in Nigeria is soccer, football. We call it football. You guys call something else football. I don't know what that is. But we call soccer football. And when we play football in Nigeria, you have the goalie, you have the defenders, you have the midfielders, you have the strikers, right? The job is for the defenders to take that ball to the net. Now, that ball has to go through the defenders to the midfielders to the strikers, and the strikers strike. That's why they call strikers. They strike into the net of the other team. But why the defender's role is so important is that they initiate that pass, right? That first pass, they pass it. And pass by pass, pass by pass, somehow, after many minutes, sometimes after 90 minutes, <laughs> right? Hopefully, the ball gets there. But sometimes it might take 90 minutes. Sometimes it might take five minutes. Sometimes it takes two minutes. Sometimes seconds. But oftentimes it takes longer, and that's the same thing we're dealing with here. One conversation at a time. One conversation at a time, and we pass it on. Right? I've had friends in, my, in school that I've been chatting with, sort of engaging them on this topic, and they're like, yeah, three years ago in college, my roommate brought that up, and we had a conversation about it. I'm like, thank God for that roommate. Mm-hmm. He's passed the ball to me. Now I have to be faithful. I have to bring it up. Thank God I brought it up. And who knows, five years from now when he becomes a resident, hopefully another resident will be faithful and bring it up. And eventually, hopefully, maybe 10 years, that ball will get to the net. So what do we do? We advance one conversation at a time. But what would it look like if every one of us here is faithful to that? What would it look like if the however many Christians, one billion, I don't know. What would it look like if that, the millions of Christians who are on the earth are faithful to that, are saying, you know what? I'm going to be faithful to this and bring it up wherever I go. And every Christian all around the world is passing the ball. Right? And your coworker who starts work tomorrow with you, you bring it up. And hopefully his previous coworker brought it up. And as he moves through life, different believers are bringing it up to him. How amazing would that be? One conversation at a time. And, I'm, and I brought this up because sometimes it takes years. Sometimes you don't even see the fruit. Sometimes the defenders are out here being distracted and the strikers go and score. And they're like, oh, wow, that's true. That was the pass I made. You know, Sometimes it might not happen in our lifetime. And that's the patience required in personal evangelism. So you might have to bring it up in conversations. And one approach I found helpful is asking questions personally. Because you might, you might wonder, well, how do I bring it up? What do I even start? I don't even know what, to, like, what can I even say? And I like asking questions. Sometimes out of the blue, 
like, hey man, what, you know, how did you, I mean, what did you grow up? Did you like grow up going to church or not really? And they probably say not really. Like, oh, why was that? And they probably give some response and you ask, why? And you keep asking why. And they keep talking. I mean, it sounds simplified, but it works. Because when you ask why, there's a genuine interest in like finding out why. And when you ask these questions, you listen. Again, this is not the Bible, right? This is just a personal approach that I've, I've, you know, I've used. And obviously, it could work in different ways. But this is one way I've, that, that has really helped me in my journey. Just asking all these questions and listening to learn. Listening in a way, just, just to see like you care about what your life looks like. And then what I've found is that after talking for a while, people get tired of talking about themselves a little bit sometimes. <laughs> and they want to hear you talk about yourself. And so they ask you, well, what about you? And then you like, take your time and you smile. Are you sure you want to know? <laughs> and then you share. Well, that's a little bit simplified, but that just gives an idea of how, just, uh, just one approach. Um, asking a lot of questions with a genuine interest to know and learn about these people and then over time, who knows, perhaps, because you've asked them so many questions and they've talked about themselves, perhaps they would listen to you talk about yourself. They'll listen to you talk about what gives you hope and fulfillment. And these questions could come in different shapes and sizes and forms. But thinking actively, I, I, I challenge you, as you move to work tomorrow, just thinking, well, 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 how can I just bring this up using work? How can I like, bring this up in what way? Every day thinking about that, like, how can I do this? And also praying about it, like, God, can you just open, just let me see, let me see a way in which I could bring this to the table, this conversation. And I found that God is faithful in answering that prayer, especially, about creating room for us to see how we can engage people. Or if you have a home, you can invite people over. Maybe step out of your comfort zone. Maybe you're not the kind of person who likes to have people in your space. Maybe. Maybe you could try that. Have people over at your home, cook something for them, and just talk to them and get to know them. Now, addressing some barriers to personal evangelism, I have to move because we have like five minutes to go, but this is like the end. Now, there are a couple of things that we think about that kind of hinder us. Like, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that weird person. Like, that's just weird, man. And people start avoiding you and stuff like that. And I'm sorry, you might have to be that weird person. You probably will be that weird person. Um, and that's fine. You know, I, I remember reading, when I became a believer, and it was like the scariest article I read, and, you know, he was like, the moment you become a Christian, you give up your rights to be cool. That was like the, the first sentence in that, like, in that article. I was like, oh my God, what did I, what did I just get into? And, and, and that is just truth. Because if we're really trying not to be weird, I'm sorry, we'll miss the point, and we'll just waste our lives. And... We have following a lot of people who were weird. Jesus was strange. And he said some things and like hundreds of people just walked away like this dude is crazy. Eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they walked away like this dude is weird. And that is the person we're following, right? It is going to be weird. What's one second? I'm just going to round up and then we'll go have some questions. Um, and you can see I'm still a struggling Christian. And I brought up that passage right earlier about the people who doubted, who were struggling. And he still sends them. So it doesn't matter. You're a struggling person. Yeah, we're all struggling. In fact, if you think you're not struggling, then I don't know. We're all struggling, and that's just truth. 
I don't know what to say. And this is like a very important one. I give some suggestions, right? Asking questions like, what do you think? You know, hey, what do you think about that? Hey, what gives you hope in life? Hey, what's, what gives you purpose? And as the answer, you just go deeper, press into that. Well, why? And ask many more why questions, many more wondering questions. Like, you know, I'm just wondering, I see you do this. Why do you do that? Why are you so scared? Why are you so anxious? Just asking why. And that really unpacks what people think. And sometimes we're just afraid of having these conversations because we don't know what they're going to say. Um, but people just answer. And you keep asking. And over time, hopefully, by them answering, they've told you a lot about themselves. So they've let you into their lives. And you can let them into yours as well. Now, I want to bring, still on this conversation, I don't know what to say. I want us to consider Apostle Paul. Now, Apostle Paul was something similar to an attorney in his day, very eloquent. But he brings this up. Now, the Corinthians, from what I read, I did a little bit of research on these people. People would travel to Corinth, these professional orators. They would go and have all these speeches, and people would pay to go listen to these orators, right? So the Corinthians were, I guess, known to love this thing, this eloquence and all that. But here's what Paul says. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is Paul saying this, right? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And Paul is here saying, guys, when I came, I didn't, I didn't have all the words. I wish I did, but I intentionally, I just, I didn't have it. But I proclaimed one thing to you, Jesus and Him crucified. And I didn't want to talk about anything. I didn't want to talk about much else. And here's why. So that when you eventually believe, it won't be that Paul's eloquence brought you to faith. Why? So that your faith will be purely on Jesus. And that's why worrying so much about, well, how can I put this in this eloquent way? doesn't really help. What do we do? We just proclaim Jesus. and This is a simple message. We're all broken. We're all messed up. God really loves us and he wants to fix this. And how does he fix this? He changes us one by one. That is the gospel. He died so that the consequences of our foolishness won't come upon us. And he took that upon himself so that we will live for him. That's the gospel. And Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't have to, I didn't really need to come up with all this, you know, super logical and eloquent things. I just proclaimed Jesus and him crucified. And that's what he calls us to do today. Again, I don't know what to say. Consider what Paul said, Jesus and him crucified. Start there. And over time, we'll work with you. I don't want to be rejected. Again, the person we're following was rejected. In fact, killed. I don't think we're at that point where we're getting killed yet. But this is who we're following. Because he was rejected, there's a decent chance we will be. And we need to embrace that and move forward. And find hope and faith in the fact that he who matters most has accepted us, right? Right? So we cling, and that's why it's important to cling to him so tightly so that when we're rejected, we have something to latch into the love of Christ. 
So action steps. What do we do? We pray. We think about people in our lives. We pray for them. We spend time praying for them. I encourage you, before you even have the conversation, pray for them. Take two minutes. Take one minute. Pray for them. Pray that their hearts will be open to it. Pray that their hearts will be broken. Pray. And then, you know what? Just go. Literally, just go. And I want to end with this story. It's my senior year in college, and I... It was spring. I was going to graduate in May, May 2015. So it was spring. This was January 2015. It was, a, it was a Friday. I got a text from my friend. I didn't see the text, but the text came in on Friday night. He was like, yo, Kalechi, you know, let's hang out um, tomorrow. Please tell me you're on campus. Let's hang out tomorrow. That's the way the text was, literally. Please tell me you're on campus. Let's hang out tomorrow. And I didn't see the text Friday, but I saw it Saturday morning. Saturday morning, I saw it. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's hang out later tonight. And... Um, so I came back at like 3 p.m. that day, and I got an email, you know, from the school's president, you know. And, you know, usually if someone passes away, we get a, an email, you know. Oh, you know, we regret to announce the death of this person. And, and so that name was my friend's name. The person whom I just texted that morning, right? So he, apparently he was killed by a car at 4.30 a.m. Saturday morning. He sent a message at 8 p.m., he was killed 4.30 a.m., and I saw the message at 9 a.m. And I responded, not knowing what had happened. And he was gone. But the hope I had was that he came to know the Lord, you know, the summer before. However, I was just thinking, this guy is here today, and tomorrow. he texts me, and he dies like five hours, however many hours later. And I'm thinking about, Wow. We don't have as much time as we think we do. And I began to think about a lot of my friends in college whom I'd never, ever engaged with. And I was wondering, like, can I really, can I really say I love these people? And the one thing I claim to believe they need, I don't tell them about it. It's either I don't really love them or I don't really believe they need this thing. Either I didn't, I don't, it, like, literally, there was no other explanation I could come up with. Either I don't love them or oh, I don't think they need the gospel. In other words, they'll be fine without it. And so that just really challenged me in college. I, you know, I, I had a job in Boston, and I, I just called them up. I'm like, yo, I can't. I can't come. I have to just stay back in campus and hang out with my friends. And so for, for a full year, I worked as a, as, a, as a campus missionary. But that's not what we're called to do. But I want, the reason why I shared that story is for me to think about the fact that your coworker or your classmate tomorrow might in fact be gone by Tuesday. And I'm not saying this to scare anyone, but I'm saying this to just proclaim reality. That the life we live is very brief. Last night before I went to bed, I looked up a message from my friend that a classmate of ours passed away on 1st of November. And I'm just thinking about, I wonder, I wonder if his friends shared this thing with him before he passed away. He went to eat, and he complained of stomach upset, and he was gone by the, by the next day. He died. And I'm not saying this to just cast a, just a veil of hopelessness and like fear and panic, but just for us to understand that this is an urgent call. We don't have time. We really do not have time. And we have to move about this with a sense of urgency. So I want to just spend... 
one minute because we need to go up and just pray. What was your question? It wasn't a question. Okay. Um, great job. Thank you. Um, my name is Rico, and I've been traveling the rest of the ministry work, helping young adults dealing with cancer. And the way I approach even people that I meet next to me, um, like a Starbucks or whatever, is I'll just ask them, is there anything I need prayer for? So at work, the co-workers, if someone's going through a hard time or anything, or even sometimes just saying, is there anything I pray for you? And then pray for them there. And well, another thing that what we want to think about is when we're ministering to someone or sharing the gospel to someone, think about how do I want to be approached mm-hmm. and hear the gospel. Um, and even within that is like the greatest commandment. Ask God, God, will you teach me to love you with all my heart and mm-hmm. my soul? And will you teach me to love my neighbor as myself? Because we're loving our neighbor in the way he calls us to and encourages us. And one last verse within that is is in Colossians 3.12, where it's a combination of asking the Holy Spirit to teach us this, and it's also being mindful of Mm. it. And it really is the fruit of the Spirit. It's therefore, as God-chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Um, So as we're ministering, as we're sharing the gospel and evangelizing, just being that kind of mm-hmm. passion, gentle, and thinking about being in their shoes the way I want, I want to be to witness to makes a big difference in real life, too, is what you were saying, is God plants the seeds. Mm-hmm. And we, he uses us to plant the seed. Not for them to know Christ right at that moment. Mm-hmm. We show that gentleness and we share what the gospel is. And even going back to um, Genesis one twenty six, God created us in his image and likeness. Mm-hmm. And one of my other favorite verses is, Psalms 37, 20, um, Psalms 37, 4. Delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Down. And that's God, what Jesus did is to restore him. Thank you. Yeah, and these are, I mean, I mean that's that's absolutely correct. It, it really does matter how we, how we proclaim it. And again, it has to be done in love, in gentleness, in compassion, because that's how Christ dealt with us. That's really how he did it with us. And think about a Samaritan woman, and as he engaged her in compassion, she had multiple husbands, and she didn't, he didn't come yelling. I mean, he knew all about that, but there was a, there was a love, there was a, you know, I, you know, I'm with you. There was a sense of solidarity with this person, and that's what we're called to do. So let's um, just spend one minute. Um, just, I just want to encourage you, just right now in this time, just think about five people three people that you want to be praying for and you want to start working towards engaging with. Just think about them. Dear Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of evangelism. We have this grace you've given to us. You've decided to use us, broken and weak people, to work alongside you in this redemption plan. And it's a beautiful thing. And oftentimes, Lord, we're for different reasons. We take it for granted and we choose not to obey. And sometimes we just, we might even just waste our lives just pursuing other things. 
I want to pray for these people whom we have thought about. That first of all, you will be working in their heart, changing them, saving them. But also that you will give us the boldness to actively bring it up, to be uncomfortable. Give us the willingness. May we be willing to be that weird person. We consider Christ on the cross and whatever, whatever shame comes with being that weird person, help us to embrace that because Christ embraced death on the cross for us. And since we're crucified with him, may we be willing to die to our pride and ourselves um, for the sake of others. We thank you for this time. We pray all this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.